Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Please turn to Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. Jonah tap, chapter 2 through three ten. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may relent and turn and turn his, from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give thanks. Dear Lord, we are thankful that you have revealed yourself in this way to us, that we have your word, and that through it we may know you and may know you greater than we could wish for. Um, please help to bless us as we continue to read and to study your word this week as we continue another week through Jonah. We're thankful for you and all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when I was about five years old, one of the neighbors on our blocks, named the Baxies, held a block party. Now, part of this block party was going to be that each uh, kid would either like perform a skit or sing a song or something like that. Um, and I'm not really sure how this happened, because if you think I'm introverted now, you should have seen me when I was five. What would have happened is you would have known who I was, but known nothing about you that my mother didn't tell you. And I would have known stuff about you because, like a fly in the wall, I would have heard stuff, right? But you wouldn't have actually spoken to me and got information. But how it turned out is that I was slated to sing Little Bunny Foo-Foo. And if you don't know it, it's like this nursery rhyme that children learn. Little Bunny Foo-Foo. I'm sorry. When Heidi read our scripture reading today, all I was thinking of is that this is chapter one that we're reading and not chapter three. 
So I'm sorry. I just automatically went into, we got to do the sermon illustration from chapter one again this morning. So that's not the plan. I'm sorry. Um, right? It kind of felt like we're stuck in a loop. Have you, any of you seen that early 90s movie Groundhog Day? with Bill Murray, right? It's kind, reading chapter three is kind of like being stuck in Groundhog Day, where we're kind of reading the same thing, but maybe this time he gets it right, instead of chapter one, where it was absolutely not right, right? And it's not just chapter three. Chapter four is also going to kind of look like chapter two. I promise I won't just reread my chapter two sermon introduction illustration, I, I will come up with something new. That joke only works one time. But you might be wondering to yourself, if chapter 3 is repetitive of chapter 1, why am I still preaching on it? And just to be honest, it's because there's a lot more to say about chapter 1 that I didn't get the chance to in the two weeks I already spent on it, so now I have a third chance. So thank you for granting that to me. It is slightly different, though, right? It is very similar, but there are differences. Right? And that means it conveys a different message than the previous chapters did. Right? So through this series of Jonah, I've been really working hard to try to convey the richness of the gospel and our desperate need for it. Right? That we're not able to do this alone. That we have a desperate need of a Savior. And fortunately, we have one in Christ Jesus, who, as the series title has told you every week, is the better Jonah. But you might be wondering, how does salvation work, right? How does God actually go about the process of saving people, right? So today we're going to look at a few steps that God takes to bring people to salvation. How does God save? Tyrell in the back, let me go ahead and apologize. I didn't pick up the remote today, so it's all on you, buddy. But part one is that God provides the means what does that mean, that God provides the means? God has revealed himself in two ways to his creation. That first is through natural revelation. Now, thank you, Devin. Natural revelation is that through all creation around us, right, that all nature, all of nature speaks to its creator. Right, that even the intelligent design behind everything we have on this planet and its ability to sustain life is sign of a creator and an intelligent designer. Right, the fact that if the earth was off access by just a little bit, it couldn't sustain life. If it spun slightly faster or slightly slower, it couldn't sustain life. If it was slightly further or closer to the sun, it couldn't sustain life. If the sun was slightly hotter or colder, the earth couldn't sustain life. Right? All these things come from an intelligent designer and not just randomness. I can remember in my mid-20s, I went hiking with my dad in the Swiss Alps. Um, and we were about a couple of days in, in Grindelwald, when I turned to my dad and I said, looking at all of this beauty, I do not know how anyone can deny that there is a God who created this. Because I've seen random image generators. I've seen random username generators when you try to make something on a website. 
They never come out pretty, right? They come out random and hideous and atrocious, right? But God, with all this nature that is so beautiful, whether it's the Swiss Alps, whether it's here in Atlantic Iowa with our beautiful fields, or even if it's the concrete jungle that I know of as Houston, Texas, right? There's a beauty in all of it that it came from a creator who knew what they were doing and not just random happenings. Right? And the second way that God has revealed himself is through what theologians call special revelation. And this is that God has specifically revealed himself to mankind through his own direct words. Right? So this includes scripture that we just read. Um, it includes prophecy. It includes the guidance of the Holy Spirit that he gives us. It includes Jesus' own life. And it includes miracles that God performs. So, what was the means that God provided for salvation here in chapter 3? Well, to the Ninevites, God provided Jonah himself. Right? Everything that Jonah had been through up to this point was a means for God to reach the Ninevites. All right, let's look again at the first portion of our passage today. This is starting at Jonah 2, verse 10, that last verse of chapter 2, through verse 4 of chapter 3. And the word of the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And like Once again, I'd like to remind you, chapter 3 is very reminiscent to chapter 1. These first three verses of chapter 3 are almost exactly the same, but a little bit better. I'm a little bit, a lot of a bit better. All right. So let's break down these first three verses and compare them to chapter one. Feel free to keep looking at chapter three. I'm going to read the verses in chapter one, one at a time. So Jonah chapter one, verse one, is now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, that's pretty much the same. Not much has changed here. We dropped the son of Amittai part, but considering we're, you know, it's not like Jonah's disappeared from the story. We can probably figure it's talking about the same dude that it was in chapter one. So we can probably drop that. Um, it is a little bit uh, poking fun at him, though, because it adds the, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Right, he needed to be told twice, not just once. Then we go on to verse two. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So here's our first, like, real difference. Right? In chapter 1, Jonah's told that he's being called, why he's been called to do this, for their evil has come up before me. We're now in chapter 3, he's told he needs to call against Nineveh the message that the Lord tells him to. So now, this is finally starting to look like a normal book in the prophets, where you usually get one of those, thus saith the Lord moments, 
We still don't quite have that, but it's, it's pretty close that we've not gotten before in Jonah, really. And if we look at verse 3, this is from chapter 1. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now here's where Jonah has clearly changed. Right? He finally, the second time, does what the Lord says. He arises, he goes to Nineveh, instead of running and fleeing the calling that God had given to him in chapter 1. And the Ninevites needed Jonah to come and proclaim the word of the Lord to them. Right? Because as the Apostle Paul tells us later in Romans chapter 10, that faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of the Lord. So what happened to Jonah to change his response? In the same way God provided the means to change Jonah, right? He provided those. He had nearly died when he was cast overboard from the ship. But God used his sovereign control over everything to save Jonah and show him the grace, mercy, and compassion that he had been unwilling to show the Ninevites before. After being saved by the Lord in this way, nothing would be quite the same in Jonah. His heart changed. So just as God had provided the means for Jonah's heart to change through the storm, through the great fish, through vomiting him out on the dry land, so does he change the hearts of those whom he saves. This leads us to our second way of how God goes about the process of saving is that God changes hearts. How many of us feel like our life is the same now as it was before we had known the Lord? Hopefully not many, right? If you haven't felt that change in your heart, right, the regeneration of your heart and gone through that, some of that process of sanctification that the Holy Spirit brings through us, then I would look deep and hard about whether or not you have truly put your hope and trust and faith in Jesus Christ to stand for your sins, right? Whether that has gone from head knowledge of who Jesus is, has transformed your heart and gone into your heart as well, right? Are you really there or are you still trying to do it on your own? Jonah, similarly to us, had tried to do it on his own. He had actively run from the Lord, and he had run from the calling that the Lord had given him, this calling to preach to the Ninevites. God, however, saved him from himself in this process. God hurled a storm to stop him. God threw him off the ship so that he could run no farther And then he sent a fish to swallow him, to save him from the depths of the sea. God does not stop in his pursuit of his elect. All right, if he has made the decision to save, then he will pursue them with all of his might to do so, because we cannot escape 
the irresistible grace of our Lord. Right? Jesus, however, in comparison to Jonah, did not need correction from the Father to complete his calling. Jesus knew from before creation exactly what he was called to do. He never backed away from that calling. He never ran, but instead he fulfilled it completely. And Jesus still has part of his calling to complete when he returns again. And we can trust that he did that because he fulfilled what he was supposed to do the first time, right? God has fulfilled his covenants, and we can continue to trust that he will do so. If we look back at Jonah chapter 3, I'm going to read a big portion of it here, um, starting at verse 4, almost to the end. Right? Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Like I said before, chapter 3 is similar to chapter 1, right? For a majority of this chapter, we're once again not even focused on Jonah again, right? But we're focused on the Ninevites, the Gentile Ninevites, just like in chapter 1, we were kind of focused on the Gentile sailors and how they, in both chapters, responded to what God was doing. Here, Jonah gives what may be the shortest sermon ever given. And yet with this short sermon, it seems to have one of the largest effects on a people group that we've ever heard of. It's only eight words. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now you may be wondering... Why can't my sermon only be eight words? <laughs> I wish I could tell you, but God did not speak to me directly to give you eight words and only that. But I will try to summarize this entire series in eight words for you. Stop running from God. Turn instead towards Jesus. Right? The Ninevites' response is pretty surprising to us, but it would have been really surprising to Jonah. If you can remember back to our first week, right, I spoke about the incredible evils that the Assyrians had committed. Right, Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent civilizations in the ancient Near East. Right, we have writings from their kings about fields just covered in dead bodies that the people that they had captured, they would chop off their, both their legs, one of their arms, and leave the other one intact 
so they could shake it in mockery of their captured people. Then they would force family members to parade around with their loved ones' decapitated heads on poles. To their prisoners, they would pull out their tongues, they'd spread them out and lash their backs and display their skins on walls. Finally, the Assyrians would burn children alive. If you think that their change looks big to us, imagine how it looked to Jonah who would have known about all of this and maybe even known people personally that this had happened to. But here, unlike Jonah, the Ninevites change. God changes their heart. They begin to fast. They tear their clothes. They put on sackcloth, and they sat in ashes. And not just the Ninevites, but even the king felt the same way and made a proclamation throughout the city for everyone to take part in this. The entire city turns and repents of the evil that they have committed. A whole city being saved because of God's sovereign power. All from a simple eight-word sermon that if you didn't catch it, didn't even mention God. That's incredible. But really, right, how surprised should we be? Because right, Jonah, like we had discussed, right, salvation is something that the Jews knew about but didn't really share with the nations around them. You know, they thought they were the chosen people of God. And so seeing a vast metropolis turn towards God would have been an incredible sight to Jonah. But what would have turned the Ninevites so quickly? Like, what is, is there a sign that goes with this, right? Some scholars believe that the three days that Jonah spent inside the belly of the great fish probably bleached his skin a ghostly white. Probably more ghostly white than my own is, which is hard for me to imagine, but that's probably the case. Right? And that the tail that happened right, in the skin to prove it would have been a great sign to them that this was truly a sign from God. Because Jesus himself mentions the sign of Jonah in Matthew 12. This is Matthew 12, verse 38 to 42. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. When Jesus rose from the dead after three days and nights in the tomb, he still bore the marks of his crucifixion. Right, from the nails in his wrist and the hole in his side. Right, just like Jonah, three days in the fish probably bore the marks of 
stomach acids from a fish, right? And we know that these signs are important because we know the disciple Thomas, who we only know by the unfortunate name of Doubting Thomas, right? Wouldn't believe it was truly Christ after his resurrection without seeing and touching his wounds for himself. So I'm sure that many of the Ninevites also were indeed convinced by the bleaching and scarring of Jonah's skin. But also similarly, like Jonah, Jesus also goes to a Gentile nation to perform his work after his time on a ship in the midst of a storm, like Jonah in chapter 1. In Matthew 8, right, we're told about Jesus being in the belly of a boat, like Jonah, sleeping, like Jonah, as the disciples, like the sailors, are scared for their lives and kind of freaking out. Um, The difference is that Jonah has to be thrown off the ship to calm the storm, whereas Jesus is able to rebuke the storm himself. But immediately after this story, not a chapter later, not five verses later, the very next thing that happens is that Jesus goes to a Gentile nation and performs miracles and heals men and shares the gospel with a Gentile nation. Right? Jesus goes immediately from the ship on the storm in the Sea of Galilee to the country of the Gadarenes, where he heals two men possessed by demons or legion, thousands of demons. And if you look at that same story in Mark 5, right, the possessed man requests to stay with Jesus after he has done this. Instead, Jesus tells him to remain and to tell the people what the Lord has done and the great mercy he had upon them. Through Jesus preaching the word and Jonah proclaiming the word of the Lord, the hearts of those listening to them is changed. Sometimes we're scared to know, or sometimes we're scared to evangelize because we don't know the exact words to say. Right? Like with anything, you get better at it the more you do it. But God can still use it even when you do a bad job of it the first time for his own will. Jonah's eight-word sermon doesn't even mention God, but God still uses it to change an entire city, a large city, a city-state towards him. So trust me, you forgetting a couple of words does not mean that it's ineffective. Because God provides those means, and God's the one who changes hearts. Not you, not me. It is God. Right? And when that happens, when that heart change happens, right, we realize our deep need for a Savior. We realize how completely indebted we are and how broken the sin that we are. We end up realizing how holy God truly is and how terribly our sins have offended him. Right, but this change in our heart leads us to the next step that we've seen the Ninevites take already, which is to repent and to turn away from our sinful ways. And in this, God is good to forgive those who repent. 
the third step that God has in salvation is that he forgives those who repent. This is the last verse of chapter 3. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Constantly throughout the Old Testament, we see God warning Israel of how they have fallen and the evils that they are committing. God constantly tells them that if they are to repent and turn away from their sins, that he will relent from bringing disaster upon them. Here we see God doing the exact same for a Gentile nation. His promises did not, and they do not hold for Jews only, but for anyone to whom he has called to himself. Because God is good and God is merciful. He does not, he does relent for those who turn from their wicked ways and come back to him, just as he did here for the Ninevites. And it's easy for us to read these Old Testament passages where he says this and to think only of Israel because often they're the ones we're trying to sympathize with and they're, you know, who the story is often about. But as we've been doing our 90-day read-through, some of y'all have joined us in that, we are currently stuck right in the middle of the prophets. I actually kind of forget where we are officially. I'm a few days ahead, so I'm right in the middle of the minor prophets. I think y'all are somewhere in Ezekiel. Um, but you've read this many times, right? And as I was preparing this, I was reminded of a prophecy made in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 18, right? Here's what the Lord says to Jeremiah. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Right? As we're told this over and over again. And I do generally find when I read this, I think, oh yeah, if Israel will repent, that's what will happen. Often, because we're often reading of judgment upon Israel, we also read about judgment upon the other nations surrounding them, but we read a lot about Israel. But here it is clear in Jeremiah that if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So my question for us is do we always feel like Others deserve this mercy from God. Oftentimes we don't because we are also sinful, arrogant, and selfish. Right? We sometimes think that only we deserve the mercy that God brings to those who turn away from their evil. We'll often preach that no one is too far gone for God to change towards Jesus but we act differently, right? We act as if that is an impossibility, right? We'll shun those who don't fit our idea of what a Christian is 
or of people that have committed some sin that we haven't committed, but we've put it off as some other, well, no one can come back from that one. Or I haven't done that one, so I'm clear, but that one is worse, right? We have to remind ourselves that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of the God, that none of us are deserving of his mercy. We're not saved because we're worthy, but because he has decided to be merciful and gracious towards us, just as God has been towards the Ninevites here. Because Jesus himself argued for those who didn't know him. This is in Luke 23, where Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So how do we treat the non-believers around us? Do we show mercy because they don't know what they do? Do we not share the gospel with them because we think they're undeserving? Or are we scared of the consequences we might receive for sharing the gospel because we ourselves feel uncomfortable? Jesus had compassion and mercy for the lost. That's why when the Pharisees were asking about why he was eating with the lost, the sinners, the tax collectors, his response was, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus has mercy and compassion on people. And we as believers in Christ have already received that grace and mercy that we also need to extend to others. Why aren't we more Christ-like in our own behavior to show the sinners who haven't experienced Christ's mercy and forgiveness just yet? What is keeping us from being as merciful as the Lord is here to the Minevites? If you can remember to what I said about the Assyrians and how they treated people and their evil ways in Jonah's time, they turned from their wicked ways. And God was still good and just to relent from the disaster that he had planned for them. So are the people that we know that we refuse to share the gospel with, that we think are too far gone, are they worse than the Assyrians were there? I don't know anyone personally that falls as far as the evils that the Assyrians were committed. Not even close. So we, too, can show grace and mercy to those around us who don't know Christ yet. Now, some of you may be on this list somewhere. You might be waiting for God to provide the means. You might have had the means. Someone has preached the gospel to you, which I hope I've done. Um, But he hasn't changed your heart yet. Or maybe he's changed your heart, but you haven't repented yet. And you haven't received that forgiveness yet. Right? I would implore you, if you've not repented yet, today, find some time. Pray to God. Confess your sins and ask for God to change your heart. In so doing, make drastic changes to remove sin and the temptation to sin from your life. Here we see that God forgives and relents 
from bringing disaster upon the Ninevites because they have responded in faith and repented. Like I said, some of you may still be in this process. Right? You may be waiting for the means. You may, be, you may have the head knowledge that hasn't transformed to a heart yet. Or, and honestly, that part, going from head knowledge to a changed heart, makes up a lot of people. But like the Ninevites, realize who God is, that he is loving, that he is merciful, that God is full of grace, that God is compassionate, and that God is kind, that our sins constantly separate us from him, that we desperately need to turn away from our sins. And by turning away, I don't simply mean that we avoid it, or this is my sins, and this is me turning my back on it, but what Jesus tells people on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, right? He keeps telling them to gouge out your eye or to chop off your hand because it's better to enter the kingdom of heaven blind or without a hand than to be cast into hell with it. Now, Jesus isn't literally telling you to gouge out your eyes because you looked upon someone with lust, but he is saying you need to do whatever is drastically different to remove yourself from these sins, Right? If gossip is your issue, then to avoid your friends that always gossip, get new friends. Or to tell them, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can we not do this? To be upfront. Or if pornography is your issue, to keep your electronic devices out of private spaces, that your phone doesn't go to your bathroom, that your computer is not in a room by itself, but it's in a public place where anyone can walk in on you. Right? You have to do these drastic things that make a difference. That is repentance. So, Jonah gave an eight-word sermon to the Ninevites, and it changed an entire city. So, I gave a summary of my series, but I'm going to give you another eight-word sermon here today. You desperately need Jesus. Turn to him today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so thankful for you that you have been that Savior that we needed, that you have offered us that grace and mercy, and you've relented when we have repented. Some of us may not be there yet, and my prayer is that they will seek you out today, that you will provide the means, that you will change their heart, and that you will relent when they repent. Lord, I pray, I know you can change every and any heart. I pray that you will change ours, and that as we go out, that we will change, we will work, you will work through us to change the hearts and provide the means to our community. Lord, we are thankful for you and all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. As we resume singing to Jesus today, the God of all that he has done, we're starting with the classic hymn, Jesus Paid It All. I just want to remind you that Jesus is the one who has paid for your sins. If you do not know him yet, I implore you to do it, that he is the one who has taken 
all the stains from your sin, and he has washed them white as snow. Please stand and join us in worship this morning.